Well, Pastor Jennifer explained so well what we hope to do this fall with our mission and vision statement that I won't say too much more about that. But I will say that I want to focus on it so that we can be reminded of these good words that we have felt led to say about our church and about what God calls us to, and to be open to what new words, what new questions, what new plans the Spirit might speak into this moment. So in order to start that, I would like for us all to read together uh, the mission and vision statements on the front of your bulletin. We are a family practicing the grace and wisdom of Jesus Christ. We joyfully minister to the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs of life-seeking people. We celebrate the rich diversity of our members and we gladly invite others to join us in service to Christ. May it be so. Our scripture this morning is uh, Mark 3, 20 through 35, and I'll be reading bits and pieces of that as we go along. Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Family. That word elicits within us the warmth of embrace, the relief of acceptance, the deep breath of respite from the striving and pretending that this world demands. And that word makes us recoil under the weight of heavy expectations against the baggage carried across generations away from the jagged edges of broken promises, brutal words, and bruising silences from kin which have wounded us deeper than our enemies ever will. Jesus was born into a family like our families, healing and harming, stifling and strengthening, merciful and manipulative, controlling and caring. Early in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds swarm Jesus, desperate for his words of affirmation, desperate for his touch of healing, desperate to be included. If you're following along, Mark writes, beginning in verse 20, the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. I think Jesus' family does what all of our families would do. They try to get him out of there. I mean, maybe they're concerned about his safety. Maybe they wanted to quit this traveling preacher healer nonsense. They needed him to work as a carpenter to support the family. Oh son, don't you want to do anything else but be a preacher? I wonder that sometimes. 
Maybe they felt the grief that who he was becoming was not who they wanted or expected him to be. Maybe they were embarrassed and even a little ashamed at what he was doing. Jesus was loved by his biological family and he loved his biological family. But he had a greater vision. So he felt that strain that we all do when we step outside of the plans and expectations of father and mother and sister and brother. But he stayed put. If you jump down to verse 31, this is what Mark tells us. Then his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside asking for you. And he asked, Who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. There are two words that Jesus says here to describe the family He was creating. Two words that should describe us. The first is whoever. Jesus was starting a family for whoever came to Him, for whoever listened to His teaching, for whoever invited Him to the table, for whoever reached out their hand in need. He was starting not just a kingdom, but a kingdom that could not be contained by blood or religion. Jesus' family included Samaritans who were seen as racially impure heretics. They called them dogs and Pharisees, the teachers of the Jewish law who were seen to be the most upright and the most pure. Jesus was starting a family that could no longer be prescribed by political affiliation. It included zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and tax collectors who got rich working with Rome to exploit their own people. Jesus was starting a family that can no longer be restricted by status. It included a woman who bled continually for 12 years, which meant she was ritually unclean for 12 years, and synagogue leaders. Jesus was starting a family that no longer could be defined by ability. His family included lepers and the deaf and the mute. In our time, we might say that they are differently abled, but in Jesus' time, it was understood that they deserved what they got because they sinned or their parents sinned. Jesus was starting a family that could no longer be prescribed by category. His family included women who were seen as little more than property and forbidden to speak in public to people they weren't blood related to. Men, that is. Jesus' family included children who were not pampered and praised as they are now, but only seen as valuable for the work that they would do one day. Jesus' family was a family for whoever. A family for all. 
So if we say our church is a Jesus family, we should welcome whoever comes through these doors and whoever comes into the doors of our lives. But welcoming is not enough. The second word Jesus uses, actually the second and third word he uses, are brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't want to just draw a crowd. He didn't just want followers. Yes, it's true, he called us friends, but he wanted more than friendship. Jesus wanted us to be more deeply and intimately related, like sisters and brothers. Jesus knows that our biological families have limits, that their expectations can squeeze and stifle us, that their conflicts can estrange us. Jesus knows that blood kin can wound deeper than anyone else. Jesus knows that we can feel alone, unseen, misunderstood, and undervalued in their midst. Jesus knows that we can lose our families. Father, mother, sister, and brother, and even children to death. Jesus knows that we need a second family where the Spirit is thicker than blood. His desire is God's desire, as the psalmist says, to put the lonely into families. That is what church is meant to be. A place where Jesus can say to us again what He said to His mother and to His best friend as He was dying from the cross. Behold, this is your son. Behold, this is your mother. A family of choice that Paul describes as connected like a body where when one member hurts, the others hurt. And when one member celebrates, the others rejoice. A family of faith where we can heal and grow and find joy in Jesus in ways not possible, even in the best families of origin. When we're at our best at West Main, we are this kind of family. A few years ago, a, a man in his 30s told me about bringing his young family to West Main for the first time. His friends told him that they, sh they should try us out but as he, imposed, as he approached the imposing brick structure with its cold brass rails, he wasn't so sure. And his family had only really worshipped at contemporary churches, and he heard that we kind of are into hymns and the organ. I forgot how much I missed that organ until this morning. But he did a really brave and vulnerable thing. They did a really brave and vulnerable thing, like some of you have done maybe for the first time this morning. They opened the door and they came inside. And as they walked into the fellowship hall, they were astounded by the warmth in the room, by the genuine connection of sisters and brothers laughing, maybe a little too loud around the table, and by friends that were excited to see them and strangers who couldn't introduce themselves fast enough. You know, that old nursery rhyme is right. Here is the church. And this is the steeple. And you open it up and here are all the people. Church is really about the people. I mean, sometimes we get caught up in lots of other things and we forget that. 
But for almost 82 years now, as Pastor Jennifer reminded us, there have been people on this corner who got it. People who became brothers and sisters praying over a dream in the Averett College Auditorium. Who wanted to stand between the mills and the mansions on Main Street and embrace whoever came. These people became brothers and sisters when they renovated an old frame house with hard-earned savings and sweat equity and threw parties on the porch. These people became brothers and sisters as they prayed together and rocked each other's babies as they walked with each other through wartime hardship and grief and cancer and all manner of things. And they became family as they walked across the street to give freshmen at Averett snacks. These people became family as they had uncomfortable disagreements in Sunday school or business meetings and in that same week came into the sanctuary and harmonized on precious hymns. These people became family as they embraced people who had been rejected by others for no fault of their own or who needed a place of grace to let them stay and be held after making huge personal mistakes. These people became family as they came up to work on Tuesday nights and ate pinto beans, as they chopped vegetables at Grace in Maine and swung hammers at Habitat and had brownie sundaes in the courtyard. These people became family as they stayed friends for 50 years or longer and as they got up from their pew to make sure the person who's been here five minutes didn't feel so alone. In all of these things, you have become brothers and sisters. We have become brothers and sisters. Now, of course, I have to say this. This family of faith at West Main is not perfect. It's far from it. Like every other church and every other human institutions, we have repeated the dysfunctions of the biological family. But what I pray will define us, what I pray will define the greater church is not these imperfections or failures nor even the successes, but our willingness to listen to the stubborn Spirit of God who spurs us on to be a better family, to be more inclusive, to make sure no one is ignored or left out, and to fight for deeper relationships. The United States Surgeon General Vivek Murphy says that the most pressing health issue we face is loneliness. In his July 2023 advisory, our epidemic of loneliness and isolation, he reports that lacking social connection can increase the premature the risk for premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Let that sink in. Being alone is like the same thing health-wise as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It can increase our chances of heart or respiratory disease, stroke, anxiety, depression, or dementia. 
Murphy reports that approximately half of U.S. adults experience loneliness with much higher rates in teens and young adults. But I probably don't have to cite a study to tell you that. You know it because you feel it. Or your loved ones feel it. You might even feel it, regrettably, in this church. So how do we overcome this? It feels so daunting. And this idea of family can be such a big vision and dream. On a recent podcast, Murphy outlines four simple steps we can take. And I'll highlight three of these. The first is to reach out to someone who doesn't live in your household for 15 minutes once a day. He says it can be a phone call or a text or a time to go get coffee or writing a note. He says this reminds us that other people outside of our immediate family, those people we say have to love us or uh, like our parents, you know, that, that love us the most, people outside of those people care about us. We have to remind ourselves of that because it makes us feel less lonely and more valued. But I want to turn that around and ask, who is someone in this church who might be lonely that you might reach out to, that you might give 15 minutes to, maybe not every day, but a couple times a week? Who is someone in your life who could use that kind of connection? A text, a phone call, an invitation to coffee, a quick visit to the nursing home, sticking around a few minutes after this service to talk when you just feel like going to lunch. The second is that when you're spending time with someone, you need to put away your phone or stop looking over their shoulder and really give them your full attention. Pretend like they're the only person in the world when you're talking to them. That slows time down and makes you feel connected and it makes them feel more valuable too. So I wonder who in this church family or who in your life could use your undivided attention? Who might need a good listening to? Who might you just sit with? Finally, Murphy says that when we feel alone, we should serve. We should give. We should think about how we can help somebody else. He acknowledges that seems counterintuitive because we're the ones that feel like we need something. But it helps us to see the value we have to offer. And again, it helps us to connect with each other. It's a win-win. So who in this church family or who in your life might need something from you this week? These are simple things that aren't really so simple, are they? But they're the building blocks of deeper, more intimate family relationships. And that's especially true when we're talking about a Jesus family. Because we have the audacity to believe that when one or two are gathered in Jesus' name, that they, He is right there with us. So when you reach out to connect with someone, when you give someone your attention, when you serve them, neither of you are alone. 
Not just because you're connecting with each other, but because Jesus is in your midst and you feel more connected to him. Well, there's a lot of development with Caesar's Casino coming in down the street. And I've joked around a little bit with our staff and some of you that we need one of those flashing neon lights, you know, just to fit in with the neighbors. I'm thinking Jesus saves. Jesus saves. But, you know, maybe that won't be that necessary if we listen to Dr. Murphy and Brother Jesus. If we put in the hard work of relationship to embrace whoever comes into this church and whoever comes into our lives, maybe the sign won't be necessary if we put in the deep intentional work to deepen the relationships we already have with each other so that we aren't just friend, church friends or acquaintances, but actually sisters and brothers. Then we will be what we sang earlier in Brian Jeffrey Leach's hymn. We will be a temple, the Spirit's dwelling place, formed in great weakness, a cup to hold God's grace. We will remember that we die alone, for on its own each ember loses fire. So instead we will join in one the flame that burns to give warmth and light and to inspire. Our individual embers grow cold and they blow out all on their own. But if we can hold them together, if we can hold on to each other, they can burn bright and offer light and warmth in this cold, dark world. And maybe that glow, that warmth, will be enough to tell them that Jesus saves.